0: 4th Lecture, Part 2 of On the Future of Our Educational Institutions, by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by J. M. Kennedy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our minds, as we thus argued with the philosopher, were unanimous and mutually encouraging and stimulating one another. We slowly walked with him backwards and forwards along the unencumbered space which had earlier in the day served us as a shooting range. And then, In the still night, under the peaceful light of hundreds of stars, we all broke out into a tirade which ran somewhat as follows. "'You have told us so much about the genius,' we began, about his lonely and wearisome journey through the world, as if nature never exhibited anything but the most diametrical contraries, in one place the stupid, dull masses, acting by instinct, and then, on a far higher and more remote plane, the great contemplating few, destined for the production of immortal works.' but now you call these apexes of the intellectual pyramid it would however seem that beyond the broad heavily burdened foundation up to the highest of the free and unencumbered peaks there must be countless intermediate degrees and that here we must apply the saying natura non facit saltus where then are we to look for the beginning of what you call culture where is the line of demarcation to be drawn between the spheres which are ruled from below upwards and those which are ruled from above downwards And if it be only in connection with these exalted beings that true culture may be spoken of, how are institutions to be founded for the uncertain existence of such natures? How can we devise educational establishments which shall be of benefit only to these select few? It rather seems to us that such persons know how to find their own way, and that their full strength is shown in their being able to walk without the educational crutches necessary for other people and thus undisturbed to make their way through the storm and stress of this rough world just like a phantom. We kept on arguing in this fashion, speaking without any great ability and not putting our thoughts in any special form, but the philosopher's companion went even further and said to him, Just think of all these great geniuses of whom we are wont to be so proud, looking upon them as a tried and true leaders and guides of this real German spirit. Whose names we commemorate by statues and festivals, and whose works we hold up with feelings of pride for the admiration of foreign lands? How did they obtain the education you demand for them? To what degree do they show that they have been nourished and matured by basking in the sun of national education? And yet they are seen to be possible. They have nevertheless become men whom we must honour. Yea, their works themselves justify the form of the development of these noble spirits. They justify even a certain want of education for which we must make allowance owing to their country and the age in which they lived. How could Lessing and Winckelmann benefit by the German culture of their time? Even less than, or at all events just as little as Beethoven, Schiller, Goethe, or even one of our great poets and artists. It may perhaps be a law of nature that only the later generations are destined to know by what divine gifts an earlier generation was favoured. At this point the old philosopher could not control his anger, and shouted to his companion, Oh, you innocent lamb of knowledge, you gentle sucking doves, all of you! And would you give the name of arguments to those distorted, clumsy, narrow-minded, ungainly crippled things? Yes, I have just now been listening to the fruits of some of this present-day culture, and my ears are still ringing with the sound of historical, self-understood things, of overwise and pitiless historical reasonings mark this thou unprofane nature thou hast grown old and for thousands of years this starry sky has spanned the space above thee but thou hast never yet heard such conceited and at bottom mischievous chatter as the talk of the present day so you are proud of your poets and artists my good teutons you point to them and brag about them to foreign countries do you and because it has given you no trouble to have them amongst you you have formed a pleasant theory that you need not concern yourselves further with them isn't that so my inexperienced children they come of their own free will the stork brings them to you who would dare to mention a midwife you deserve an earnest teaching eh you should be proud of the fact that all the noble and brilliant men we have mentioned were prematurely suffocated worn out and crushed through you through your barbarism you think without shame of lessing who on account of your stupidity perished in battle against your ludicrous gods and idols the evils of your theatres you learned men and your theologians without once daring to lift himself to the height of that immortal flight for which he was brought into the world and what are your impressions when you think of Winkelmann, who that he might rid his eyes of your grotesque fatuousness went to beg help from the jesuits and whose disgraceful religious conversion recoils upon you and will always remain an ineffaceable blemish upon you you can even name schiller without blushing just look at his picture the fiery sparkling eyes look at you with disdain those flushed death-like cheeks can you learn nothing from all that in him you had a beautiful and divine plaything and through it was destroyed And if it had been possible for you to take Goethe's friendship away from this melancholy, hasty life, hunted to premature death, and then you would have crushed him even sooner than you did. You have not rendered assistance to a single one of our great geniuses, and now upon that fact you wish to build up the theory that none of them shall ever be helped in the future? For each of them, however, up to this very moment you have always been the resistance of the stupid world that Goethe speaks of in his epilogue to the bell. Towards each of them, you act the part of apathetic dullards, or jealous narrow-hearts, or malignant egotists. In spite of you, they created their immortal works, against you they directed their attacks, and thanks to you they died so prematurely, their tasks only half accomplished, blunted and dulled and shattered in the battle. Who can tell to what these heroic men were destined to attain if only that true German spirit had gathered them together within the protecting walls of a powerful institution? that spirit which without the help of some such institution drags out an isolated debased and degraded existence all those great men were utterly ruined and it is only an insane belief in the hegelian reasonableness of all happenings which would absolve you of any responsibility in the manner and not those men alone indictments are pouring forth against you from every intellectual province whether i look at the talents of our poets philosophers painters or sculptors and not only in the case of gifts of the highest order i everywhere see immaturity overstrained nerves or prematurely exhausted energies abilities wasted and nipped in the bud i everywhere feel that resistance of the stupid world in other words your guiltiness that is what i am speaking about when i speak of lacking educational establishments and why think those which at present claim the name in such a pitiful condition Whoever is pleased to call this an ideal desire, and refers to it as ideal, as if he were trying to get rid of it by praising me, deserves the answer that the present system is a scandal and a disgrace, and that the man who asks for warmth in the midst of ice and snow must indeed get angry if he hears this referred to as an ideal desire. The matter we are now discussing is concerned with clear, urgent, and palpably evident realities. A man who knows anything of the question feels there is a need which must be seen to, just like cold and hunger. But the man who is not affected at all by this matter most certainly has a standard by which to measure the extent of his own culture, and thus to know what I call culture, and where the line should be drawn between that which is ruled from below upwards and that which is ruled from above downwards. The philosopher seemed to be speaking very heatedly we begged him to walk round with us again since he had uttered the latter part of his discourse standing near the tree stump which had served us as a target for a few minutes not a word more was spoken slowly and thoughtfully we walked to and fro we did not so much feel ashamed of having brought forward such foolish arguments as we felt a kind of restitution of our personality after the heated and so far as we were concerned very unflattering utterance of the philosopher we seemed to feel ourselves nearer to him that we even stood in a personal relationship to him for so wretched is man that he never feels himself brought into such close contact with the stranger as when the latter shows some sign of weakness some defect that our philosopher had lost his temper and made use of abusive language helped to bridge over the gulf created between us by our timid respect for him And for the sake of the reader who feels his indignation rising at this suggestion, let it be added that this bridge often leads from distant hero-worship to personal love and pity. And, after the feeling that our personality had been restored to us, this pity gradually became stronger and stronger. Why were we making this old man walk up and down with us between the rocks and trees at that time of the night? And, since he had yielded to our entreaties, Why could we not have thought of a more modest and unassuming manner of having ourselves instructed? Why should the three of us have contradicted him in such clumsy terms? For now we saw how thoughtless, unprepared, and baseless were all the objections we had made, and how greatly the echo of the present was heard in them, the voice of which, in the province of culture, the old man would fain not have heard. Our objections, however, were not purely intellectual ones, our reasons for protesting against the philosopher's statement seemed to lie elsewhere. They arose, perhaps, from the instinctive anxiety to know whether, if the philosopher's views were carried into effect, our own personalities would find a place in the higher or lower division. And this made it necessary for us to find some arguments against the mode of thinking which robbed us of our self-styled claims to culture. People, however, should not argue with companions who feel the weight of an argument so personally, or as the moral in our case would have been such companions should not argue should not contradict at all so we walked on beside the philosopher ashamed compassionate dissatisfied with ourselves and more than ever convinced that the old man was right and that we had done him wrong how remote now seemed the youthful dream of our educational institution how clearly we saw the danger which we had hitherto escaped merely by good luck namely giving ourselves up body and soul to the educational system which forced itself upon our notice so enticingly from the time we entered the public schools up to that moment how then had it come about that we had not taken our places in the chorus of its admirers perhaps merely because we were real students and could still draw back from the rough and tumble the pushing and struggling the restless ever-breaking waves of publicity to seek refuge in our own little educational establishment which however time would soon have swallowed up also overcome by such reflections we were about to address the philosopher again when he suddenly turned towards us and said in a softer tone i cannot be surprised if you young men behave rashly and thoughtlessly for it is hardly likely that you have ever seriously considered what i have just said to you don't be in a hurry carry this question about with you and do at any rate consider it day and night For you are now at the parting of the ways, and now you know where each path leads. If you take one, your age will receive you with open arms. You will not find it wanting in honors and decorations. You will form units of an enormous rank and file. And there will be as many people like-minded standing behind you as in front of you. And when the leader gives the word, it will be re-echoed from rank to rank. For here your first duty is this to fight in rank and file, and your second, to annihilate all those who refuse to form part of the rank and file. On the other path, you will have but few fellow-travellers. It is more arduous, winding, and precipitous, and those who take the first path will mock you, for your progress is more wearisome, and they will try to lure you over into their ranks. When the two paths happen to cross, however, you will be roughly handled, and thrust aside, or else shunned and isolated. Now, take these two parties, so different from each other in every respect, and tell me what meaning an educational establishment would have for them. That enormous horde, crowding onwards on their first path towards its goal, would take the term to mean an institution by which each of its members would become duly qualified to take his place in the rank and file, and would be purged of everything which might tend to make him strive after higher and more remote aims i don't deny of course that they could find pompous words with which to describe their aims for example they speak of the universal development of free personality upon a firm social national and human basis or they announce as their goal the founding of the peaceful sovereignty of the people upon reason education and justice an educational establishment for the other and smaller company, however, would be something vastly different. They would employ it to prevent themselves from being separated from one another and overwhelmed by the first huge crowd to prevent their few select spirits from losing sight of their splendid and noble task through premature weariness, or from being turned aside from the true path, corrupted or subverted. These select spirits must complete their work, that is the raison d'etre of their common institution, a work, indeed, which, as it were, must be free from subjective traces, and must further rise above the transient events of future times as the pure reflection of the eternal and immutable essence of things. And all those who occupy places in that institution must cooperate in the endeavour to engender men of genius by this purification from subjectiveness and the creation of the works of genius, not a few, even of those whose talents may be of the second or third order, are suited to such cooperation, and only when serving in such an educational establishment as this do they feel that they are truly carrying out their life's task. But now it is just these talents I speak of which are drawn away from the true path, and their instincts estranged by the continual seductions of that modern culture the egotistic emotions weakness and vanities of these few select minds are continually assailed by the temptations unceasingly murmured into their ears by the spirit of the age come with me there you are servants retainers tools eclipsed by higher natures your own peculiar characteristics never have free play you are tied down chained down like slaves yea like automata here with me you will enjoy the freedom of your own personalities as masters should your talents will cast their lustre on yourselves alone with their aid you may come to the very front rank an innumerable train of followers will accompany you and the applause of public opinion will yield you more pleasure than a nobly bestowed commendation from the height of genius even the very best of men now yield to these temptations And it cannot be said that the deciding factor here is the degree of talent, or whether a man is accessible to these voices or not, but rather the degree and the height of a certain moral sublimity, the instinct towards heroism, towards sacrifice, and finally a positive, habitual need of culture, prepared by a proper kind of education, which education, as I have previously said, is first and foremost obedience and submission to the discipline of genius." of this discipline and submission however the present institutions called by courtesy educational establishments know nothing whatever although i have no doubt that the public school was originally intended to be an institution for sowing the seeds of true culture or at least as preparation for it i have no doubt either that they took the first bold steps in the wonderful and stirring times of the reformation and that afterwards in the era which gave birth to schiller and goethe there was again a growing demand for culture like the first protuberance of that wing spoken of by plato and the phaedrus which at every contact with the beautiful bears the soul aloft into the upper regions the habitations of the gods ah began the philosopher's companion when you quote the divine plato in the world of ideas i do not think you are angry with me however much of my previous utterance may have merited your disapproval and wrath As soon as you speak of it, I feel the platonic wing rising within me, and it is only at intervals, when I act as the charioteer of my soul, that I have any difficulty with the resisting and unwilling horse that Plato has also described to us, the crooked, lumbering animal put together anyhow with a short, thick neck, flat-faced and of a dark color, with gray eyes and a blood-red complexion. The mate of insolence and pride, shag-eared and deaf, hardly yielding to whip or spur. Just think of how long I have lived at a distance from you, and how all those temptations you speak of have endeavored to lure me away, not perhaps without some success, even though I myself may not have observed it. I now see more clearly than ever the necessity for an institution which will enable us to live and mix freely with the few men of true culture, so that we may have them as our leaders and guiding stars how greatly I feel the danger of traveling alone. And when it occurred to me that I could save myself by flight from all contact with the spirit of time, I found that this flight itself was a mere delusion. Continuously, with every breath we take, some amount of that atmosphere circulates through every vein and artery, and no solitude is lonesome or distant enough for us to be out of reach of its fogs and clouds. Whether in the guise of hope, doubt, profit or virtue, the shades of that culture hover about us, and we have been deceived by that jugglery even here in the presence of a true hermit of culture. How steadfastly and faithfully must the few followers of that culture, which might almost be called sectarian, be ever on the alert! How they must strengthen and uphold one another! How adversely would any errors be criticized here, and how sympathetically excused! And thus, teacher, I ask you to pardon me, after you have labored so earnestly to set me in the right path. "'You use a language which I do not care for, my friend,' said the philosopher, "'and one which reminds me of a diocesan conference. "'With that I have nothing to do, but your platonic horse pleases me, "'and on its account you shall be forgiven. "'I am willing to exchange my own animal for yours, "'but it is getting chilly, and I don't feel inclined to walk about any more just now.' The friend I was waiting for is indeed foolish enough to come up here even at midnight, if he promised to do so. But I have waited in vain for the signal agreed upon, and I cannot guess what has delayed him. For as a rule he is punctual, as we old men are wont to be, something that you young men nowadays look upon as old-fashioned. But he has left me in the lurch for once. How annoying it is! Come away with me. It's time to go. At this moment, something happened. End of Fourth Lecture, Part 2